noted and referenced by the likes of J. Allen Hynek and Jacques Vallée. Some describe this case as being one of the most credible examples of a UFO killing a human. Others, an exaggeration, the results of a social autopsy written by years of word of mouth. Was it a close encounter of the second kind or a freak accident spiced up in its retelling? Either way, the debate between skeptics, believers, and authorities all agree there was a casualty, and his final, gruesome moments did exist. This is the case of Joa Prestes Filo, a.k.a. the Melting Man of Brazil. I didn't see you there. Something big is going on here. From hunting ghosts to Bigfoot. Paranormal, UFOs, true crime, and more. We won't just be spouting articles. I was researching for your entertainment. Beginning of a new world. The best guac you'll ever fucking eat. True story. It's basically like one day you walk outside and you see that the ants are playing with matches. This, this is the Black Hat Report. See you on the other side. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 64 of the Black Cat Report. My name is Gil, and this week we only got Joey along with me. Hello, Joey. Hey, only got me today, so <laughs> only I'm sorry you for the future. All I need. Yes, sir. Sorry, Betsa Bay. We'll see you hopefully next week. It's better to only have Joey than to just have Betsa Bay. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. She doesn't listen to the show. She won't notice that. She'll hear it. We miss you, Betsabe. Glad yeah. you're having fun in your in your uh, trip. Yeah, Betsabe is in Turkey. Now, let's see. Now, but super super excited about this week's episode. Um, Joey can back me up on this. I've been like bashing my head against the wall trying to figure out how to break this down because it was one of those cases where I was like, "Cool, here's an old case that I heard about. Doesn't really get covered that much. Um, seems really interesting. Seems really like." you know, unique and obscure and like there might be some cool points to it. And then I dug in and I dug and I dug and I kept digging. And then I found out that the general story, which I'm going to explain in detail here, um, basically is wrong in a, in not the way that you might think it is. So let's get started with my long, long, long ass research driven intro. That's right, baby. But trust me, it's worth it to stick around. Now he dug so far, he hit China. So <laughs> yeah, I dug so far, China hit us. Now <laughs> let's get in. Hugged by mountains and spotted with traditional architecture, the small Brazilian town of Arasaraguma exists today as a popular tourist destination, just an hour and a half drive northwest of Sao Paulo, Brazil. With just 22,000 residents, beautiful hotels, and excellent skiing, it could be compared to a city like Aspen, Colorado. Just three times larger, six times more affordable, and nine times more paranormally active than Skinwalker Ranch. Hmm. But what this town is known for today, being a, let's say, cozy little hamlet in the valley, stands in a stark contrast to its very modest heritage. You see... Hmm. Much like Aspen was in the mid-1900s, this now quaint getaway from the city used to be an isolated rural town, just another small farming community accessible only by dirt roads. And it is here where our story takes place. Side fun fact, um, a lot of really beautiful cheap hotels there. Saw that when I was looking that up. Uh-huh. 
Yeah. Is that going to be a Black Cat Report trip then, huh? You know what I'm saying? Maybe we get some Groupons, you know what I'm saying? So, before we get to Joel and how he became known as the Melting Man of Brazil, we got to give the source for today's episode and address a little bit of misinfo people may have heard before. Now, after a lot of digging through conflicting accounts, we eventually discovered an absolute gem. Incredible, on-the-ground research by two ufologists whose names I will try my best to pronounce, and then immediately just jump to using only their first names, which are much easier for my hallowed tongue. Claudio Suyoshi Singua and Pablo Viubera Maso. So sorry about butchering those names. But yeah. So we're going to be calling them <laughs> Claudio and Pablo. So much easier. Much easier. Now, Claudio and Pablo, two ufologists who, in the 90s, had no intent on digging into this case, but knew an opportunity when they saw one and was ultimately highlighted in a 1998 article called The Incredible Saga of Jao Prestes by Pablo rest of his name, translated by Scott Corrales, published in issue six of Inexplicitica, the link to which will be in the show notes. And actually, I'm, I'm going to be honest, um, it's fairly short paper. I think it's like, I don't know, eight pages, but it's, it's written so well and there's so many cross references and it's so dense and actually kind of funny. Um, highly recommend going to look at it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there'll be yeah. three links all of them are pretty much to like archive pages because this this magazine isn't even in in print anymore now. Yeah, damn. Now, as for the misinformation and anyone who has heard of this case, I want to start off by saying there is still a body, a widow, and six children left picking up the pieces of their life in the end. So mm-hmm. don't worry if that's where you're coming from. The way the story has been told, right, and the past has left so many people to believe that Joa may have just been in the wrong place at the wrong time. This was actually debated when the case kind of first became public. Mm-hmm. That somehow he was just, let's just say, uh, an innocent bystander to a cosmic hit and run. And people argued that in the UFO community. They're like, well, you know, the aliens, the people flying the UFOs, they, they probably didn't mean to do this to him, right? But the truth is, the setting where the events take place. The town of Arasegama is in reality known by everyone who lives there as a hotbed for high strangeness with a long, well-documented history of aggressive paranormal encounters. This place is like an evil Disneyland of high strangeness, but all anyone has been talking about this whole time is a body found in the parking lot. All that said, this leads us to why we're using Pablo's article as our source. Well, Zhao's case was made internationally known in 1971 at a Brazilian UFO conference when it was hypothesized that he may have been the unwitting victim of a UFO. By 1972, a witness to the events, Arake Gomid, was interviewed by Fernando Grossma, a ufologist researching the Joa case. This interview then went on to become the widely accepted narrative, the official story believers and skeptics alike referenced when debating it, mostly because his research became, frankly, the only source that wasn't just news headlines and hearsay. Hmm. And that, my friends, is how we get to hunting chupacabras in 1997. What? 
<laughs> I love that you right. didn't know ahead of time. <laughs> 180. You okay. had no- I literally put that in the script. I'm like, this is where Joey will probably say something because you got me like that in the past, damn it. Always, because we know each other. Yeah. <laughs> God damn it, it's true. Like, literally a 180. <laughs> like, cool, let's uh, talk about this guy who got melted, like uh, the cheddar cheese that I put on my nachos when I'm in the... <laughs> Man, you're just making me hungry by saying it sounds bad by Did the Did you say chalupa? Guy. Chupacabra. Oh, okay. Chupacabra. Chalupa. Yeah, not chalupas. <laughs> chupacabra. But going from there to there is like a complete 180. It, it but it might not be. It 100% makes sense. And again, I swear to God, if anybody at any point thinks that I'm just trying to be goofy or that I'm exaggerating, read the first two paragraphs of the source material for this episode which by the way is the most official source material for this case right this shit gets mentioned what i'm about to say gets mentioned and yes they were there hunting chupacabras now so grossma's interview was in 1972 right Mm -hmm. uh well fast forward now to 1997 decades later pablo and claro are sharing a cheap hotel room in Arisagama. This is where you can cue in some, like, um, I don't know, some, like, dark, investigative, like, noir kind of music. Like, Pablo and Claro are sharing a cheap hotel room in Arisagama. I don't know. That sounds like they it's turning in into a romance novel. Investigate this. <laughs> hold, hold on, Joey. I swear. Not, not a UFO <laughs> conference. I'm still reading. They were in the area to investigate a string of chupacabra incidents. Claudio had just stepped out of the shower and was trying off. There he... it goes. <laughs> this is true. This is what he said in the report. No, but but seriously, I'll, I'll reread that. Keep that part in if you want, Joey. But yeah, so. They met eyes. <laughs> Basically. So, Grossman's interview was in 1972, right? Well, fast forward now to 1997. Cue the music. (laughs) Pablo and Claro are sharing a cheap hotel room in Arasagama. They were in the area to investigate a string of chupacabra reports. Claudio had just stepped out of the shower and was drying off when he noticed a newspaper the last folks left in the quote grimy bathroom. Do do do. Stop music. I swear I'm not making this up. Read the first two paragraphs. That is literally like a perfect paraphrase of what they say, <laughs> <laughs> and it is it is literally accurate. He's <laughs> like, wow. like at one point, um, Pablo says he's like. So we're in this hotel room, and Claudio gets out of the shower, and now I have a Japanese guy reading Portuguese to me, translating. <laughs> and, just, and then he's telling me all about it. This literally happened. And they did say, quote, Grammy bathroom. Now, anyways, he sees a name, right? So Claudio sees a name as he's stepping out of the shower, sees his old newspaper, sees a name on the paper's obituary, and it rings a bell. Prestas. Picks it up and he starts reading it. Quote The esteemed Roque Prestes died at 91 years of age on April 6 at his home in this city. He was the brother of Jo Prestes, deceased. Mm. End quote. Now, this obituary went on to give 
the name of Joab Preistas' nephew, who eventually, we find out, happens to still be alive and lives basically right down the street from the hotel that these two ufologists are staying at. Mm. This is big. Yeah, okay, yeah they're, that's they're, huge. They're, they're there for Chupacabra. We all know UFOs are real. Chupacabra, debatable, right? But then, mm-hmm. so there, he's like, holy shit, right? Now, keep in mind, too, this case is honestly like the black sheep of ufology, right? Mm-hmm. Everyone who was into UFOs at the time knew about it because it's like, honestly, it's kind of like the way it goes is if somebody threw the absolutely horrendous stories from a scene in like a uh, Hiroshima like witness statement Mm -hmm. right they mix that together with a scene from hellraiser into a bowl and started stirring it up and by they i mean an alien was mixing these scenes together like this this Mm. is um some of the descriptions that come out of this are absolutely like horrifying and they're scarring Mm -hmm. okay and in terms of ufo history and like for ufo nerds and everything like myself um it stands out as just kind of like a i don't know where the fuck to put that one yeah (laughs) yeah um so yeah, basically what ends up happening is they got super excited, couldn't sleep, and completely forgot about chupacabra hunting. That's that's what happens with that portion of the story. That makes um, sense, yeah. Again, okay. directly in the research. <laughs> okay. Yeah. He includes a little bit too much personal information in it, but it's still yeah. good stuff. He now, was describing the towel that he walked out of the bathroom <laughs> with. I believe it was Egyptian of, cotton. <laughs> Egyptian cotton, 90, 100 fiber thread count. <laughs> The only thing that ufologists love more than cryptids is obsessively, obsessively researching and documenting everything, its explicit timeline, and the exact placement of Venus at the time in an event. Like, yeah. I, I think part of that is due to like an allergic reaction to like, um, let's just say like debunkers just being like, nah, that was the international space station that flew by yeah. about three hours later. Actually, the witness was hallucinating that along with the people getting picked up in their car, along with multiple other times that this has happened across the village and about 400 people saw it. Mm-hmm. And so like, it's, UFOlogists have gotten like they're like I need to know the exact second they're like I think it was seven thirty they're like God damn it woman I need to know yeah. the like, same amount of seconds how many seconds <laughs> seven thirty yeah. and thirty seconds now I'm going to spend the next fourteen hours measuring the perception of a second just so Craig doesn't have anything to say on Facebook go like yeah that's pretty much yeah yeah I love I love my UFO community. I am I am actively in the process of becoming a MUFON field investigator in my free time, just FYI. Um mm. love the fuck out of the nerdiness, but like you got to learn to laugh at yourself, y'all. Like we're fucking nerds. Now, this and this story by the way is basically a case in like good research. Secret lesson. The next day, they call up the nephew, 61-year-old Roque Priestas, who by the way is still mourning the death of his father, but regardless, they end up going over to his house, where they would eventually go on to interview him about the traumatic death of his uncle, Joa. In hindsight, this may have been bad timing, but it happened, and they broke open a controversial case, so... Yeah, yeah, yeah I guess. one half does the other. Yeah, it kind of works out, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. Anyways... Roque Priestess, who was nine at the time of his uncle's death, right? This was 51 years earlier. Mm -hmm. 
Doesn't matter, though, because he was still able to give them more accurate information, if not more family-known details, about what really went down leading up to Jaws' death. But not only did he give more details, he also gave them info about other paranormal events and violent encounters that happened over the years, some of them almost identical to what happened to his uncle. Hmm. Moving on from there, though, I want to kind of, sorry, just to backtrack a little bit, I want to kind of bounce between this, like, I guess you would say it's like a side quest, right? Hmm. And I'll kind of get into some details at the end about why it's a side quest and how it all develops. But these interviews, the side comments in them, add up over time. I've removed them from the script until the very end so that we can have basically two plots. You're stuck with me. Unless you hit stop. Please don't hit stop. Also, yeah. um, rate and review us for five stars. If not, if you don't like us, why are you even spending the time doing it? That's really unhealthy for your, for your life and stuff. Um, well, we're like about us. to go on like a Goosebumps Choose Your Own Adventure, except for instead of choosing, Gil's choosing for you. So uh, mm-hmm. you'll see both sides of this uh, railway, railway that we are going on. If you're so. a real fan of the show, you got really excited all day about this release. <laughs> and honestly, you fell asleep by now listening to it. I do the same thing with my favorite podcasts, and um, thank you. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> now, on March 4th, 1946, Joe is making his way back home from a long day of successfully avoiding all the local celebrations of Carnival. <laughs> Barefoot with a smile, he strolled down the familiar dirt roads through the quiet, pitch-black evening on the outskirts of town. Although it was late, everyone including his family, were still in town, partying and enjoying the annual festivals, just the same as they were when he had left that morning to go fishing. But Joe wasn't alone, far from it. He was carrying enough fish to feed not only himself, but his wife and six children once they had all returned back to their modest home, which, much to Joe's annoyance, had the lights off and was locked when he arrived. Well... Without his keys, I can only assume he did what everyone does when they first start to realize they're locked out. You keep trying to turn the doorknob, hoping maybe the first time you did it wrong. I don't know. Maybe that's just me, but you're just like, what? No, no, no. You bash in a window is the next thing. <laughs> almost. He almost gets there. But but yeah, so kept trying. Anyways, eventually I'm assuming said damn. And then did what everybody does. Start thinking about how to break into your own house. Yep. <laughs> Everybody has been here. I mean, Reading- he's he's pretty pissed, honestly, because he's like, I've been out here fishing all day. My family just went to fucking Carnival without me. <laughs> <laughs> They're no, out at Carnival. He's specifically, um, I have this section in my own personal notes labeled, I hate festivals um, or I hate Carnival. Um, he like everybody referenced the fact that he hated like events like this, like large festivals, large public gatherings and shit. He mm-hmm. would intentionally be like, well, I'm going over here and just like fucking leave. So Good. his family in the morning, I'm assuming it was like a you know breakfast discussion kind of thing. Like, are y'all going to carnival today? And they're like, yeah. And he's like, well, guess I'll go fishing. And then just fucking yep. dipped, you know. Yep. Um, he's probably like, so- I need a day away from my <laughs> six kids. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. So anyways. Starts trying to figure out how to break into his house. Well, luckily for Joe, uh, he managed to find an unlocked window and was able to awkwardly crawl in. 
literally we've all been there if you are in Mm -hmm. your 30s right now at some point in your life you've done this for yourself other people are a crime that i don't want you to tell me about but you should message us um at contact that black cat report for our confessions episode i'm putting together yes we can't wait to put that together allegedly allegedly well Hungry and not sure when everyone would be back, he prepped his catch and started getting everything ready to cook. Now, keep in mind, this was the 1940s in a rural town. He didn't have an air fryer. So, what was he to do? Gathered wood and began stacking it into his family's wood fire stove. His pot of fish sitting on top, ready for the boil. It was then, in the brief moments between Joab filling the stove lighting the fire then an intense light flooded in through the same window he had just crawled through well with his intention consumed by the light joa stood frozen as the quote fiery torch entered through the window Damn. suddenly every cell in his body began twisting with the sting of fire a pain so unbearable and so intense, he dropped to the floor, paralyzed to do anything but writhe in agony as the light hovered over him in the room. While it's unknown how long the scene actually lasted, what we do know is Joa, still consumed by pain as every cell in his body was burning, managed to stand up and reach the front door, only to realize His hands were completely paralyzed and contorted. His fingers and wrists twisted at just every fucking weird angle you can imagine. Mm -hmm. He then, realizing this, he then had to use his teeth to move and open the door latch to get out. He was just screaming in pain the whole damn time. Damn. Once outside, things got worse. With his body completely wrecked, Joa had to stumble through the dark, barefoot, his feet being cut by sharp rocks with every step as he cried for help into an empty neighborhood. Now, when you hear the description later that people will give, you'll know why I'm saying this wasn't anything short of a miracle, but somehow Joa managed to make the nearly mile-and-a-half-long walk to his sister's house in town. And it was here that Vergil Francisco Alves saw him, which he outlined when our ufologist interviewed him. He said, Yes, my cousin Emiliano Priestes, who was my neighbor, called me over. When I got to Maria's house, I found Joa Malakis, the sheriff, speaking to Joa. I know there's a lot of Joas, a lot of names. Mm-hmm. He was in bed and having problems with his tongue. His skin, which was fair, was toasted, reddish, as he as as if he had been roasted. His his hands and his face had the worst burns. The hands were twisted. His hair didn't burn, nor did his feet, nor his clothing. He was only burned from the waist up. His feet were torn up from running barefoot on sharp rocks. Later on, after Joa was admitted to the hospital, he would spend somewhere between six to nine hours decomposing in front of everyone 
His skin was literally falling off of his body. His muscles were exposed. And eventually, his jaw fell off. Over, like, this is like a 12, 14 hour period. He went from being totally fine and healthy. I think his age was estimated to be like late 30s, maybe Mm. like early, early 40s, like 40, 41, something like that. Totally healthy guy. Um, And in one evening, this happened to him. He just became a grilled cheese. Yeah. They they literally call him the melting man because, like, everything started falling off of him and the what they called the orderly who worked at the hospital at the time right um (laughs) who they eventually or sorry um who was first interviewed and set this whole story in motion um he 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 explained it as basically joe was just like decomposing rapidly oh, in front so of them like yeah. straight up he was decomposing although he did make a reference which i've seen enough times to feel comfortable repeating it um they said that basically the last hour that he was alive he had a, a demeanor or an expression of like being comfortable or at mm, peace yeah. um which based off of what they're describing makes me think that all of the nerve endings in his body had probably probably. died and he just couldn't feel anything. Also that last hour, he didn't even have a jaw on his face. I don't know how they're judging. He's comfortable. Um, Well, I think, I think they asked him if uh, they're like, Joa, if you're comfortable, can you give us a thumbs up? And he tried, but he didn't have thumbs anymore. So they were just like, Oh no. Sorry. Okay. That might come across as a bad joke, but that also literally might have been true. No, that's <laughs> probably true. It's really sad. Oh, my God. This is so fucked up, dude. This guy seemed like a really, really, really just like nice guy. He was just, I don't know. It's a fucked. Again, this is the black sheep of like UFO cases, right? Yeah. Like there's <laughs> there's a reason why they were like, holy shit, that dude. They're related to that dude. Like, yeah. and they got excited and they, they got so excited they forgot about chupacabras. Okay, that's pretty exciting. Well, yeah, that that's amazing. Honestly, it just sounds like he got like super radiation burns. Exactly. Like, complete radiation. A just hundred, like oh, 100%, ridiculous amounts. A hundred percent. And if you look into um folks trying to explain the situation, um, just like nowadays, like looking into mm-hmm. like just say Reddit comments or like posts on random forums and stuff, um, people bring that up, and then the other folks on the other side will come back with, "Here is the case study of these individuals who are the only known humans to survive the largest bursts of radiation, mm-hmm. and the way that their bodies were affected. You're talking like days and days or like weeks. Yeah, you're not talking about like a handful of hours." Yeah. Th- this shit was like sped up times 20. He got right? put in a microwave, it's what it sounds like. He just got put in a microwave and you just watch him turning, melting I, as he's going. I, this is crazy. Um, I, I also need to emphasize here, this is one year. One year before the atomic bomb test. Mm-hmm. This is 1946. The atomic bomb test, 1947. Mm-hmm. Right, the Kenneth Arnold sighting, right of like what do you uh, 
basically explained his saucer, skipping along, da 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 up in Washington State. Um, and then the reporter, like, misconstrued it and called them flying saucers. Literally, the situation that made flying saucers a household term, a household phrase, mm-hmm. didn't happen for, like, another year and a half. The atomic bomb wasn't invented for another year. Yeah. This was before all of that shit. It's right? so crazy. This is yeah, and it's like, and it's so fucking isolated, mm-hmm. right? It's so just like right there. It's in just a house, one in a person. Yeah, yeah, it's just one person too. It's like not. Yeah, it's like his house turned into an air fryer, which weren't even invented yet. Exactly. No, but this is like, this is fucking gruesome. I'm sorry, but this is like scary as fuck. Like around this kind mm-hmm. of shit. Like we go out locally, Joey and I, and like Betsy Bay. We'll go look for the Brown Mountain Lights. Now they seem a little bit more nefarious. Now they seem a little bit more edgy. Like, I don't know. I'm a little bit scared of them now. If they zap you when you start melting as you're walking back to your back, walking back to the campsite and you're just like, you're sitting by the fire. You have your, you know, you have your cup, you know, with your whatever you want, your coffee, your liqueur in it. Moscow mule that our friends brought. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. You're sitting there and you're, you're roasting your marshmallows and then you turn into one of those marshmallows, which is just freaking horrifying yeah you know don't know where my skin ends and where the marshmallow starts exactly yeah i mean like that's normal before the marshmallow is roasted but in that particular situation that's horrifying yeah when you just melt into a you become a s'more yeah as i said though there was an orderly there that eventually was like interviewed he was the one that was interviewed in 1972 right Mm -hmm. so it was the orderlies perspective of the situation what he understood as the story leading up to um doa being in a hospital bed decomposing in front of him over the course mm-hmm. of like a handful of hours yeah. pretty fucking traumatic for anybody even somebody that works yeah. at a hospital um it was his perspective that defined how everybody heard the story right because mm-hmm. he was the okay. person that like that the ufologist was able to find mm-hmm. reference uh interview all that jazz and that became the official report now, something interesting that he said, and this was something that was repeated by other folks that were interviewed by, by our boys, right, for this story, for the references. Mm-hmm. Um, other than just saying over and over again, repeating what had happened to him, he also kept saying that the light was, quote, otherworldly. So before his jaw fell off... D- Dead serious. Before yeah. his jaw fell off, he told everybody he could from from his sister Maria's house to the long ass like car ride there, right? Yep. Um, to the hospital, he kept repeating, "It came in through the window." It da 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 da. I blah 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 blah. Like he kept repeating exactly what the fuck happened to him. He was he, this dude was in shock constantly, yeah. and he was just mm-hmm. kept repeating it. So this is where like skeptics and stuff like that like can't actually argue because yeah. they're just like, no, it was a this. And then they're like, but the victim literally said it for 12 hours that that's not what it was. Like, that's a strong case. And then with yeah. the way his body decomposed, which is frankly the only time I've ever heard of that happening to a body in such a short period of time, mm-hmm. um, this case stands out. And since it's attached to potentially UFOs, Again, it's the black sheep. Now, as we all know, and as I've said four million times, um, he dies. He passes away, obviously, right? Mm -hmm. So this leads us to 
the police investigation. Now, again, based off of the the more updated interviews, the ones from 97, um, <laughs> nothing. There was nothing. The police went into the house. Literally nothing was burned. Hmm. Nothing had a single scorch mark on it. Everything was totally fine. Furthermore, um, and to back up what uh, um, I guess would be his, or it was his second cousin, um, what his second cousin said, even when he died in the hospital with his skin falling off and all that and everything was clearly burned on his body, his hair and his clothes, totally fucking fine. Immaculate, you could even say. Yeah, pressed. Mm-hmm. <laughs> no, but yeah, so so that kind of goes on par with like, there was nothing singed or burned in his house. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But very, very understandably, his wife and his six kids were horrified at the idea of going back to the house. They refused. Oh, for sure. Who the fuck would? <laughs> like, yeah. <I'm... laughs> you know? If it like, was there, why can't it still be there? Whatever happened to him, you know? Yeah. And so um, this all led up to, I guess it'd be 30 years afterwards. Um, well, immediately the police ordered the house to be condemned. Obviously, some wackadoo shit just happened. Yeah. And then ultimately, it was demolished in the 1960s. So can't really go check it. Now. Yeah. I wonder, though, if they could have gone with the Geiger counter a little later, like maybe 20 five six years later and just yeah. checked it out to see if it was some kind of radiation even with their even with their the house being demolished they still could have re- they could have registered some radiation if that's what it was i mean who knows it this is, seems like it you i mean you can literally go submit this idea to like ufo researchers joey because like it's a great idea to go dig into that and frankly as we're about to hear like it's a great idea just to go visit this area and hang yeah. out for about a month if you can hey well you are going to be the mufon investigator so i'm in pitching to you right now <laughs> shit that means i need to go fund me account future <laughs> gill future gill <laughs> <Future Gil. laughs> no but um yeah so you know the place was condemned and it was demolished in the 60s. And that was something that the um, the ufologist Grossman like, um, had discovered after he interviewed the orderly, right? Was he's mm-hmm. like, where's the house at? And they're like, oh, well, this is that, and this is that. So that was already documented, okay? But with all that done, <laughs> it didn't stop or even slow the encounters in this area. Now, so what I was saying about all this high strangeness that was going on and why this case shouldn't just be narrowed down to just Joe like decomposing because frankly mm-hmm. the way the story was told and the way the story is generally told is it's just the moment of like him stepping into town falling apart and dying and repeating a bunch of stuff about seeing lights mm-hmm. right it's it's like it's just the very 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 end of the story yeah. well if you recall so far Claudio and Pablo, the ufologist turned chupacabra hunters, turned ufologist again, have interviewed Joa's uh, nephew and his second cousin. Well, in their pursuit of the full story, they wanted to find Joa's grave, which led them to two more interviews. One with a quirky local historian named Hermes da Fosseca, and one with a grave digger named Nelson Oliveira, who took them right to Joa's final resting place. Now, with the full story mapped out, Claudio and Pablo began cross-referencing each interview 
all the random facts, the statements and the stories that were thrown in along the way, right? So they're recording all these interviews. Mm -hmm. They noted them from the start specifically because of one thing. Joe's nephew, Luis Presta, said, quote, he thinks that the small town might be a window area. Mm, a flap. A little bit more than a flap. It's a flap and a flop and a flip. But so so when they were interviewing Luis about his uncle's death, he said, back then, people would constantly see fireballs known as a word I can't pronounce in Portuguese, which means ghosts. (laughs) (laughs) in Aragama and its vicinity. I'm so sorry, everybody. I really try my best here. Yeah. (laughs) And that some believed they came from the gold mine that is now closed. Other weird things would happen too. This is all still the quote. My late father told us that around 1922, he was able to see a wolf man while with my Mm -hmm. grandfather and an uncle. My uncle apparently threw a rock at it and hit its hand. The next day, a neighbor turned up with his hand bandaged. What? (laughs) Right? So there's some local tea. Now, this was their first interview. Again, like, he was, Luis, he, he was nine at the time. And he openly admitted at the time that, like, his parents protected him from being able to see his uncle, Joa. They were like, nope fuck no you're not seeing that like they knew it would be scarring they knew it would be traumatizing oh for Um, sure he was able to get um a brief glimpse of him before he made it to the hospital at that point in time he basically just looked completely toasted his body was inflamed he was starting to swell but it and horrifying like absolutely horrifying just on its own but not as horrifying as it would get. So he just got, you know, partially scarred more or less yeah, from it. Um, for sure. He probably just saw what looked like uh, Donald Trump, orange glowing. Yeah. <laughs> very, very uh, uh, bloated. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of, that was pretty accurate actually. Joey. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Now on top of that, right. Uh, Lise went on to add quote, something equally scary happened to Miliano Prestes my uncle and Joa Prestes's brother. A few months after his brother's tragic death, Emiliano was walking through Aramegara Forest in another place I can't pronounce. I'm so sorry. Look at the show notes. <laughs> the, same, <laughs> the same one from which the wolfman appeared in 1922 and where the light burned Joa. A fiery torch appeared above him, causing him to run to a canyon's edge when the thing fell on him. All he could do was kneel and pray for his life. He told us that he felt an intense heat, but luckily the fiery torch moved away and vanished. That's crazy that that happened to him too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Dang. Going on, he had also included in the interview. I wanted to break this up because these stories should be told in tangent, right? Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Quote, the lights were seen most frequently between three and four in the morning and were three or four times larger than the moon. People would feel their heat and at even a distance, and they were able to move amazingly fast. My father stopped going to parties at night because of these lights. 
That's crazy. Mm-hmm. Now, from mm. the second interview, the plot thickened further when during the second interview, uh, Virgil Francisco Alves said, well, Joel was a cattle driver. He was still young and lived with his father in Aramagara. One day at sundown, as he led the donkeys over a hill, he saw a fire that fell from the sky, a fireball. It was near a chapel that had a cross, and he could see the fireball passing him, almost knocking him down. Joel would tell me at that spot you could sometimes see 10 to 12 balls emerging from the sky. Some of them were red, others moon-colored. Sometimes five or six of them would fall to the ground and explode. People would call them boitata lights. Now, as for that word, which I'm struggling with pronouncing, um, it's a local word. It's a native word, an indigenous word. For, quote, mysterious lights that would pursue and even kill the native Indians, end quote. Mm. Now, here's the things. These boitata were referenced and recorded as far back as the 16th century by a priest named Jose de Anchita. So, like, they have a long history in the region. And that's just when priests got to the area in, like, 1500s, right? They got there, and eventually it became so well-known that it got documented, right? But that also means that there was a long-standing existence of the folklore and the legend and the accounts of this before that. Yeah, It's not just, like, the priest went... I mean, maybe this priest was really into you know, paranormal shit. And he's like, Ooh, I'm going to write that down. But odds are it was like, he had other shit to do. And eventually it became enough of a situation or a situation became loud enough that he actually documented it. Um, But that, that says something. (laughs) It's been going back for that damn long. In 1957, it got really big again when Jerry Lee Lewis uh, released great balls of fire. That's true. Um, Goodness gracious. He, he went down there and saw him and that's where, where he got the song from i was gonna make a quote but i'm not now um, <laughs> you shake my nerves and you rattle my brain do, 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 do. No, oh. no please don't put that in joke please now continuing on though regale himself witnessed the apparition of one of these lights which emerged from behind the mountain where the gold mine was and landed on mount sabo which I'm assuming is a local nickname for it because I could not find it anywhere. But that's Mm. what's documented, so that's what I'm going with. Anyways, back to the quote. Mm. Another hill where strange lights always appear. Quoting him now, we also called those fires fireballs Madres de Oro, Mothers of Gold. There Mm. was also the Golden Lizard, an elongated tongue of flame that moved in a straight line slowly without making a sound. This is a lot of fucking weird shit. I just want to yeah. throw that out there. I mean, it still reminds me today that they keep seeing stuff in you know Brazil. Similar things talking about near gold mines is what they're near mines in the area, and they keep just stuff keeps happening around these areas. So it's kind of weird. And they're like dangerous things because people are being killed by these things. Yeah. So it's nuts to think about that. Like in a lot of other areas. And I know we talked about this is that especially in South America, they have so it feels like they have such dangerous UFOs that a lot of them are just being murdered or killed, you know, like a lot of the natives, <laughs> a lot of the people in the area and, you know, in the U S we're just getting abducted. You know, most people aren't dying. 
they're getting across... killed by people. They're getting killed by killed by their own people. <laughs> I came across that reminds me. I came across a a random Reddit comment while I was looking for sources and stuff, um, and <laughs> somebody just said. <laughs> God damn, aliens are racist against Brazilians. <laughs> <laughs> Those yeah, seriously, it was they're like all four getting in the morning, killed. And that was hilarious to me after reading yeah, all this. It sucks. Like I don't know if they just like the whatever if there's like a confederation of aliens that were allowed to come to the planet to abduct or do experiments and they were just like well, you know, like this, the, the evil, like crazy aliens are just like, yeah, oh, Brazil, we're going there. They got the coolest parties, you know, and they're all just yeah. like doing a line of coke, you know, partying for carnival. I don't know. <laughs> just ready to go. Like, just OK, cool. Just stab him real quick. All right. Zap him with a laser. I don't know. It just seems like they got the, the most violent aliens. Well, <clears throat> OK, <laughs> yes. But also, um, no. <laughs> so there, there is one thing that I've noticed, which is generally in very, very rural areas that are what we would even consider like a resource dense areas, mm. right? Um, that tends to be in very desolate resource dense areas. Tends to be where more aggressive or just outright violent encounters like happen. All around the mm-hmm. world. Yeah. Right? Like, even go back to one of the most famous abduction stories in history, Travis Walton, Fire in the Sky. Like, mm-hmm. they're out in the middle of fucking nowhere, like, chopping down trees. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Right. Go back to the Mojave incident. Again, literally in the middle of the Mojave Desert. <laughs> yep. Oh, true. Um, Like, a lot of these cases happen in the middle of bumfuck nowhere. Right? And yeah. so... It only makes sense to me, at least like combining that with other stuff and trying to make sense, whatever, um, that when you have a lot of um, small communities or even just like small tribes that are spread out and making very, very like low impact, uh, especially mm-hmm. with tribes like low impact to the to the local ecology, yep. um, then encounters would increase. Right. Oh, yeah, for sure. And that the pattern would continue. Um I don't know. I it's just something I noticed is that generally when somebody's abducted in the middle of nowhere, shit gets wild. Even um Whitley Strieber, communion, right? He lived in the middle of fucking nowhere with his wife and had this crazy ass like uh security system set up all around his house. I mean he openly admitted himself, but he's like, Yeah, I was super paranoid and I had cameras everywhere. Like and he lived in the middle of nowhere and look what yeah. happened to him. You know, like shit's generally True. not good when they just, you know, catch you off guard in the middle of nowhere. But I guess so. So, I don't know. But yeah, resources, man. Apparently, it just makes anything violent. Makes them go crazy. Go <laughs> <laughs> crazy. Now, moving on, though. So, now we're under the third interview. Some statements come from that. Uh, Hermes uh, de Fonseca. Quote, in 1955, I worked on the construction of a cable car in the Santa Rita cement factory. It was supposed to be used to transport rock from a local quarry. It was August 24th of that year, and the heat was unbearable when myself and other workers saw an object drifting in the blue sky as large as a truck tire. Very tall, aluminum-colored, spinning and giving off smoke circles of white. 
we saw it at a quarter past 11, and by 12 o'clock, five or six, acronym, but it was Brazilian Air Force airplanes arrived. They were smaller than the flying wheel, which distanced itself easily from the planes. On the following day, the Folha de Sao Paulo newspaper published an article about the fact that thousands of people from Osako, which is near this area, Mm -hmm. um, had seen a flying saucer with the exact same characteristics. Mm. Yeah. So you have some shit in the distance. Literally looks like truck tire, you know, semi tire out there. But then you see fighter jets as reference and you're like, oh, they look like dots. Yeah, that's uh, a huge oh, thing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the thing's huge. <laughs> and then it just completely outmaneuvers them. And then way over in another area, it's like, oh, yeah, now thousands of people just witnessed that. Again, this is like 1130 in the morning, 12 noon. Mm. This wasn't yeah. at night. This was in the morning. This is that's at like, weird. noon. Well, going on, he also said, in 1960, Celiso Gomez, a bus driver, was on his way from... Sao Roque when he saw a red light that caused him to stop the vehicle. Hmm. The light approached the cabin and Gome, frightened, began to pray. The passengers were stunned by the uncanny light, which encircled them for some 20 minutes. So now we have a bus full of people. Damn, just being like, <laughs> that look there. These fucking There's lights. another alien. <laughs> yeah. There's another UFO. Yeah. A bus full of people that saw it, along with thousands of people that saw a UFO in the area. Um, there's multiple. I got I got over trying to add in all the dogman sightings, but there's a bunch of dogman sightings in here. Hmm. So now moving up again, 1993 in the same region as <laughs> as a or sorry, in 1993 in the same region at a place called Lila Ranch, 12-year-old Regine Barbarossa de Silva watched as a 15-foot sphere hovered around before it shot her with a yellow beam of light. Quote, After the event, Regina experienced headaches and eye irritation, which, mm. end quote. Um, by the way, eye irritation is super, super, super common for close encounters with UFOs. Mm, like, yeah. specifically... Um, Oh shit! What's that called? I should know this. Uh, what is pink eye technically called? I forget. Uh, don't remember. Damn it! Damn it! Damn it! Anyways, basically pink eye. Mm, yeah. Um, pink eye isn't just caused by poo particles. I know that's what we're all taught. Uh, it's also caused by UFOs. But no, like oddly enough, Con- though, what is it? Conjunctivitis. Conjunctivitis. Thank you. Yes. Yeah. So conjunctivitis is actually not just caused by poo particles or somebody not farting only. on your pillow. Not only. Yeah. Not only. Yes. Yes. But it's also, oddly enough, heavily associated with and heavily documented to occur in folks after close encounters with UFOs. Like, people that look... like. There's a couple things. So people that see a craft very close, like up close, a lot of times they'll have... Um, more or less like a weird kind of sunburn on mm-hmm. the side of their body that was facing whatever wherever the craft was, right? Yeah. And within a day or so, they'll develop conjunctivitis. Pink eye. It's like straight so, up. so the the UFO pooped in your eye. 
UFO came in and shit all just over him. Pooped in your eye. No, but, but that also again is is part of radiation poisoning because you know when you know no. watching Oppenheimer when you see that they you know they talked about how you people put their hands in front of their face when the uh, you know uh, what is it uh, Hiroshima the happened they'd put their hand in their face and behind it their hands would be baked but then they move their hand and their face would be like they got sunburned like they held their hand yeah. there just yeah. because of how quick the radiation came through and just torched it and it's like the power basically harnessing the power of the sun and maybe in a way that's what the ufos are doing because obviously you're saying they're sun baked they're just harnessing yeah. the power of the sun i maybe atomic I energy that, that is the closest thing to it but like if my rational mind thinks about it, you know, just like, you know, going <laughs> no, into it, just thinking about it. That is. And that's why, like, I think that that's part. honestly, this is like part of the reason why, like, anytime there's like a UFO incident and like potentially one landed in a field or whatever, um, nerds like me or at least me someday um, get to go out there with Geiger counters and be like, hmm, what time was it at? No, exactly. Tell me what time it was. God damn it. You said 915. Yes, just. Was it yeah. 13 or 14? You know, like if there's things that UFO researchers are very good at, it's reading the room when they're trying to ask questions. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yes. I blame I blame the skeptics. Um, yes, it is their fault. Yes. Just, we're just going to ignore the fact that I work in spreadsheets for a living. Um, yes. No data analysis for you. No, no, no. No, but. But that, yeah, that is, that's like part of the whole rationale is like what you just said. Like there's so many, um, let me say like side effects from like close mm -hmm. encounters that have been documented yep. that um, radiation exposure makes sense. Yep. It literally, yep. it starts to meet the list where it doesn't meet the list is again, our story in yeah, we're just 1946. Melted in yeah. yeah. But also a year before the bomb was finished. Well, like, I mean, yeah, yeah, for, for that, they, I they would say. They did not but... have many um, rural living room size nukes in 1946. Well, what I'm saying is that the UFOs were yes. the radiation poisoning, okay. not, not just like somebody came in and just shot some radiation in there. I'm just yeah. thinking that maybe the UFOs had radiation because of their propulsion system yeah. Yeah, or yeah. because of their way either blending in between realities, depending or on what you believe. It might be, yeah. yeah, it might just be a reaction from their propulsion system to the physics of our reality. Our reality. Yep. It's not even that like it specifically causes that. It might not cause yep. that, let's say, in the middle of nowhere in space or let's say between dimensions. Yep. It yep. might not cause that at all. But um, it might be almost similar to an elemental reaction, right? Yep. Like throw some phosphorus into some water and see what happens. Don't actually do that. Please don't do that. No, Unless please don't. you have goggles on and you're ready to smile because it's so much fun. Now, uh, Joey's like cutting that out. <laughs> no, I'm leaving it in. So the FBI comes to your house. <laughs> and then you're going to go back to that timestamp and you're going to be like, see, I even said in case you came. Yep, in case you came. I knew it. No, no but... Wait. <laughs> Wait, they're at your house. Now, oh, yeah. moving on, though. So, uh, Regine, she got messed up, right? It didn't say anything yeah. about her dying, but she did have, like, terrible headaches, and she probably got really bad pink eye. Uh -huh. A few months after that, a guard at that exact same ranch watched, quote, two humanoids floating over a brook on the ranch's property. Just floating. 
Humanoids. Humanoids, yeah. Specific word, not humans, but humanoids. Mm-mm. No, they, which is like they were shaped like a human, but they weren't human, you know? Mm. We have to do an episode on humanoid encounters. Anyways. Yes. 1994, in the same ranch area, a couple, wa- and this is all like right in the exact same spot. Like we're yeah, talking yeah. about a very small area. 1994, same ranch area, a couple watched a, quote, spherical object measuring three meters. How big is that? Six, nine feet? Something like that? I think it's about know. three feet in a meter. Yeah. An American yard. Yeah. So, um, spherical object measuring three meters in diameter, which floated yeah, between the trees and made no sound whatsoever. It was red in color and was darker at its core. Its periphery was surrounded by several smaller blinking lights alternating between blue and red. Hmm. It's just, it's just fucking weird, right? Yeah, yeah. Very weird. Like, I've, I've heard about orbs. I've heard about uh, different kinds of orbs and, like, their level of threat or interaction. I've never heard about, like, a, a sphere orb with tiny little orbs floating around it and blinking different colors. But I digress. Yeah. Now... In that same year, three kids in the exact same area that Dodd died reportedly saw what they described as a glowing UFO floating just 50 feet above them in the backyard of a house. Same neighborhood. Later, an elderly Japanese woman who spent her youth in Santa de Paraniba, again, sorry for butchering this, um, told one of the ufologists that she had seen a half wolf man, half centaur being in the vicinity. This is just Skinwalker Ranch here in Brazil. <laughs> this is basically really. Brazilian Skinwalker Ranch. With yeah, yeah, it's like yeah. all these things. Well, yeah, and also with the dead yeah. person, you know, like <laughs> sadly, you know. Um, and I feel like they had to conclude their research paper like this just because of that that steamy start. Um, mm-hmm. It said, San Roque, again, general area, has also experienced one of the most intense waves of chupacabra activity in all of South America. Yeah, well, there you go. <laughs> That's I, I love this paper because it's a perfect example of like me writing an episode where it's like, all right, going to do a dude getting written or getting melted by UFOs. <gasps> chupacabra. <gasps> Centaurs. <laughs> like, we finally found it. Going off, but. I, I, I thought it they at the end were gonna say and and uh and this this area finally had the two greatest UFO researchers <laughs> ever in the world. Of all in freaking the time mists. ever. <laughs> Hit me on Patreon. Now yeah. um, <laughs> now Yeah, so there's obviously a lot of orbs, right? And there there's literally more in that report and if you just Google it, there's way more that show up in this general area, right? Um, and with that, there's a case I was researching, which led me to this topic, by the way, um, with government reports between 2014 and 2016, also in Brazil, uh, where there were multiple encounters with orbs, sometimes way up in the sky, other times just floating into the area where people were sleeping, doing stuff like flashing them with beams of light. Um, people reported paralysis. There was government investigations and a bunch of other interesting stuff so i'm still researching what happened but we will be covering it in a future episode that said i wanted to do this case 
on purpose, right? I wanted to do this case because first in 1946, there were no drones, right? Flashlights, frankly, weren't that bright. Um, half the area, half the areas that this is happening in don't have um, any type of municipal like electricity. Like th- These are very rural areas. The atomic bomb hadn't been invented yet. It was a year out, frankly. And like they were working their asses off. It wasn't like, well, maybe they tested it. No, no, they didn't. They basically had it ready and like set up the test within like a couple weeks. They were like, okay, we're ready. Like they were rushed. So that didn't happen. It wasn't planes. It wasn't drones. It wasn't somebody with a flashlight. It wasn't drug cartels that were also running an organ harvesting mining operation and had jetpack boots like the Peruvian government is saying is going on, right? Um, This was way the hell before that. And I wanted to give a solid context to not only that this was documented, somebody died because of it, but that there is a history going back to the 1600s explaining these types of events, right? And I hope that this, yeah, gives context to our listeners, but also helps every one of us give a middle finger to debunkers saying it's drones. I, I just, honestly, that's what I really wanted. Yeah, take that, debunkers. Fuck you, Mick West. Now, mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know who that is, but yeah. Mm, I do. Anyways, in conclusion, memories of events, though sometimes sharp, cannot pierce through the shielding of a watchful parent and family who's trying to protect a child from being scared, as it with a nephew who gave one portion of the story. Or, frankly, those same parents and adults may themselves be in shock. Adults trying to understand what they saw, processing an unfamiliar situation while at the same time struggling to answer a kid's question. A lot can be said about this, and even more to the weight of time on the scale of perceptions, but the body of truth remains, regardless. Thank you for listening. (laughs) (laughs) Thank y'all. Hope you enjoyed it. much for listening to the black cat report in our episode 64 on brazilian ufos and the melting man please follow us on instagram and rate and review of us wherever you get your podcasts also please remember our poll on spotify we'll see you next week with another fun episode we'll see you on the other side